Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Welcome, Regenerates. Uh, In today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Delton Chen for a second time to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Uh, Today, we get to dive in deep to the global carbon reward, also known as the silver gun hypothesis and uh, understand some of the inspiration, some of the story behind its creation, and unpack a little bit about um, what's been moving for Delton. And, you know, just some of the context here, for those of you who may not know, Dr. Chen's work was included in Kim Stanley Robinson's recent novel, The Ministry for the Future, which is a fantastic novel. I highly recommend grabbing it and reading it and maybe even reading it again. <laughs> I'm considering reading it a second time. It's it's just packed with information. And even though this is sort of the, the air I breathe and the water I swim in, I found it enormously both inspirational and educational. So anyway, the Ministry for the Future includes, as part of the plot, the um, adoption, the fight for adoption and the subsequent adoption and the subsequent success of the global climate movement due to the adoption of a global reward currency for atmospheric carbon drawdown mitigation and other forms of approved climate action. And the the central banks get behind it. And anyway, uh, it's very exciting and plausible and uh, I think important. And that book is making waves. I saw for what it's worth. It was on Obama's best books of 2020. Yeah, and this idea and this great thought leader is a central part of it. So I I wanted to take time. I am hoping also to get uh, Kim Stanley Robinson on the show. Um, I admit I've been too busy to to be super aggressive about making that happen. But my hope is through some connections with Delton Chin, who's gotten to sort of become friends with uh, Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson, through their work integrating this concept of the global climate reward into the new book. I feel like there may be a connection there. So keep your fingers crossed with me. And if any of you uh, know Mr. Robinson out there, yeah, give him a nudge and drop our <laughs> drop our name out there for him. And, um, and also just for things like this to happen and for me to be able to bring really the voices in this long form to delve in as we do on this show to the beauty and depth and complexity of the movement towards planetary regeneration and the ideas, uh, policies, business models, um, agroecological potential models, science that underpins this this growing movement, um, in order to do that in the best possible way, I definitely would love to get you all involved. And one of the best ways that you can get involved as a listener is give us five stars on the platform of your choice. Apple is a great place, sort of the epicenter of these sorts of things. And if you if you can take the time to write a quick review, that would be fantastic. Because when the moment comes to be able to um, talk with somebody somebody like Kim Stanley Robinson that I'd love to get on the show, it's just great to be able to show him your voices and the value that you're getting out of this. So that um, this sort of core of engaged actionists, I think it's very valuable. I think the community 
that this podcast speaks to. I wouldn't say that it's growing around this podcast, but it, because I think this podcast is just a, a, a member of a larger community. But our community is uh, is active. It's vibrant. It's making waves in the world. You all, I know, are making waves in the world. And so your voices, therefore, when you chime in and rate things or, or share on Twitter or you know, write a review, it really has a lot of uh, impact. And so I would really welcome your support in that way. You know, as as you all know, sorry to have a kind of a rambly introduction to this really fantastic episode. But as you know, this is um, a free podcast, zero ads. And I really aim to keep it that way for as long as humanly possible. I mean, at some point, perhaps it will make sense to transition into some sort of membership or other approach. But for now, we are drifting off of the largesse of Regen Network, this beautiful network, this group of organizations, this vision for a planetary accounting system for ecological health, starting with uh, living carbon. Yeah, and so we've been really blessed. The The team supports me to take the time to produce these episodes and get them out to you. So um, please uh, return as much of that favor as you can with, with ratings. Uh, so I'll get off my uh, bully pulpit there for now. And um, this is going to be the first episode we release in this new year of 2021. I do try to make these episodes kind of evergreen in a way, although we've done some special reports around the coronavirus pandemic and other things. But I do hope that by and large, they sort of stand the test of time as deep conversations around meaningful topics. And that said, welcome to 2021. It's been a crazy year in 2020. Um, I've been thinking about maybe doing a, a podcast just on uh, the last year and what's what's going, maybe a little bit more of a monologue. Um, so stay tuned. That may or may not happen. I've got several really exciting episodes. We're going to get back onto a weekly release schedule. For, so for those of you who download this right away, uh, look forward to weekly releases. I've got some really fantastic folks uh, coming up. Yeah, since I love this to be an evergreen show, I, I probably I'm not going to get into listing things because I think people listen to top listen topically instead of necessarily weekly. So enjoy the show. Leave us a comment and. Um, Hasta la regeneración siempre. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, Dr. Delton Chin. I am so excited to have you and grateful to have you on for the second time to continue diving into the global carbon reward work that you've been doing. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So, um, well, between this podcast and the last one, a really amazing thing happened, which is my personal favorite science fiction author uh, wrote a book and featured your work in it, which is uh, an honor that I imagine, I mean, I was pretty excited about it. How are you feeling? <laughs> uh, I'm really happy, actually. Um, it's an interesting thing to have uh, your work mentioned in a novel. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. Kim Stanley Robinson, he did contact me before it was published, and he asked me to review uh, the book. So I did that for him, and I gave him some detailed comments. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's been really interesting. What, what Have you read the book? Very, very. I listened to it on Audible. Yeah, I, I may listen to it again. There was so um, – there's a lot there. So I thought it was great. 
Yeah, there's a lot of different aspects of the book that would be interesting to talk with you about. How about you? I mean, so you you read it in, in sort of a review for Stan. How did that go? Uh, it was a lot of work, actually, because there are 500 pages, apparently, in the book. So I, I didn't just review the policy that he used part of his storyline, which is the global carbon rule. I also looked at some of the technical details of the story. But what's fascinating for me is that it's kind of a parallel between reality and fiction because in his novel, Stan actually refers to me by name, I think. He refers to the approach as Chen's plan. The Chen plan, yeah. <laughs> so I hope I could live up to the story. But um, anyway, the Chen plan is, is actually making some small but important steps forward this year and hopefully next year we'll get moving. In the real world. Yeah. So for, for those listeners, I mean, I think probably many listeners will have listened to your other interview. And if they haven't, I would encourage them to go back and, and do so. But for those who are just tuning in right now, you want to give just a brief overview of the Chen plan? <laughs> okay. We better not call it the Chen plan. That's not a probably a good way. It's called the global carbon reward. The people who've read some of the papers, it has been called the Global 4C in the past. That is the technical name of the policy, which stands for Global 4C Risk Mitigation, and 4C is an acronym for Complementary Currencies for Climate Change. But all those terms and words are probably too technical for um, public outreach. So the generic name of the policy is a Global Carbon Reward. And so this policy is proposed new international policy for providing scalable, debt-free financial incentives for climate mitigation services and social and ecological co-benefits. So the key here in this policy is that it's providing scalable and debt-free finance, which is uh, radically different to anything that exists in economic policies because the only finance that's part of market policy currently carbon offset credits yeah and they're, they're tied to cap and trade schemes or voluntary purchases of carbon offsets by companies that want to offset their, their emissions yeah and so and and the the carbon reward you use the term complementary currency which would be interesting maybe to unpack and and kim stanley robinson refers to it in the Ministry for the Future, as well as in a blog that I recently uh, read of his, as well as in the talk that he was giving, is essentially sort of uh, guided quantitative easing. And uh, yeah. I think, you, I think, do you mean carbon quantitative easing? Well, I, I, I'm using the word guided, and specifically, I think he, uh, in this case, it's guided for carbon outcomes. Yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. But it's sort of the theory of directing quantitative easing instead of sort of just to banks, for instance, which is current sort of orthodoxy of modern monetary theory, this, it takes, the, the idea is to take that a step further and distribute those funds, for instance, in this case, to underwrite, to underwrite a new carbon reward by, by buying it at a guaranteed price so that there's always a floor and it's always worth something is sort of the, the idea, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So, you can call it guided quantitative easing, like in the literature, they, they call it strategic. That's okay. the closest term that's often used, strategic quantitative easing, which means that it's for a specific purpose, in this case, uh, environmental purpose, rather than just 
buying government bonds, corporate bonds off the open market in bulk. Are there examples of other strategic quantitative easing programs that currently exist? No, um, I don't think so. Yeah. Because the approach of central banks generally is to be market neutral. That's yeah. their philosophy. So That's my understanding too, is that this would be, this is sort of a radical, it's asking banks to be opinionated about something. And in fact, in the Ministry for the Future, a lot of the novel is about the interplay of the director of the Ministry of the Future. I don't remember her, I think maybe her name was Mary or something, but the, the, I don't remember her title. But, you know, th this sort of technocrat or bureaucrat who's at this UN Ministry of the Future, sort of courting and cajoling and trying to convince the central banks to institute this policy, your, your policy, the policy that you outlined called the Global Carbon Reward. And I found it quite interesting, that whole part of the plot, the, the story about what it might take to get the central banks, who are traditionally fairly conservative, they have sort of a market orthodoxy in a way, and they don't really act outside of that orthodoxy. And yeah, I'm just curious if, A, if in reference to this novel we keep referring to, if you felt like that part of the plot felt sort of realistic, and if you were interested in that interplay, um, A, and B, you know, how are you thinking about that? Because I know you're actively lobbying people to try to get this underway, so. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, topic. So, look, the novel Ministry of the Future, I think there's some plausibility to it in that the novel portrays these historical events, you know, um, a heat wave in India and the death of thousands, if not millions of people. And so we are seeing examples of that already with leaking of Great Barrier Reef and there's been uh, major forest fires in California, Australia. So these stick in people's minds and it creates a new zeitgeist of what's possible. The feeling that something big has to happen in the world economy to respond. And so the way that our team is actually planning to promote the, the Global Carbon Reward is to uh, set up a, a collaboration with an international nonprofit. We, we haven't prepared ourselves quite enough yet to, to do that, but early next year we intend to approach an international NGO. And then through that NGO, we intend to raise uh, sponsorship and find a government. So we want to find uh, at least one nation in the world. There's approximately 195 nations with roughly 190 central banks. Almost every country has a central bank. So we just need to find at least one that's willing to run a demonstration project with their central bank. So the key here is to set up two or three demonstrations at the minimum with the cooperation of the government and central bank, and then we'll issue our own digital currency, and then central bank will buy that currency from the marketplace. And uh, we'll demonstrate the measurement reporting verification and the service level agreements and the administration behind it. And the objective here is not to create some amazing platform. It's really to illustrate to the world how it works and that it's possible. Because um, a barrier to a policy like this is the conceptualization and the resistance of mainstream economists to an idea that's never really been discussed. So 
hopefully a demonstration will cut through those uh, initial doubts that it's even possible. Mm-hmm. So just simply by showing how it works, maybe in a documentary, or YouTube videos and website and interviews, etc., the world will have to take notice and then people will talk about it and then I assume it will begin to gain its own inertia, possibly attracting other countries and other central banks to join the pilot and then encouraging economists and policymakers to discuss what effectively we call carbon quantitative easing. Central banks buy a unit of account that is carbon mitigation services and using it to create a new investment. So if you want to talk about the financial mechanism, we could do that. I'll just take a break, let you you (laughs) respond. Yeah, definitely. I think it would be very interesting to chat a little bit more about the financial mechanism and, you know, how this may catalyze a transformation of the financial industry. Uh, There's lots of interesting things there. I, I wonder if you considered instead of a central bank, one of the DeFi applications that are popping up, which are essentially sort of, you know, decentral banks. <laughs> you know, DeFi is I'm quite new to the DeFi uh, world. And all I know is that there are stable coins. My personal opinion at this stage is that we need the central bank in the demonstration to break through that invisible ceiling of all some belief systems that central banks would never cooperate because they do have a reputation of being very conservative and there's some pretty extreme opinions out there about what central banks and central bankers are like, that they're almost um, devil worshippers or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, all of that aside, I mean, I think in the, it's funny sort of referring to a novel as sort of like a placeholder in the conversation, but given it's sort of some shared context, perhaps for us and maybe for others who've read it, and this is a reoccurring theme in Kim Stanley Robinson's work, actually, what, what I'm about to talk about. But he basically outlines, I would say, sort of a hypothesis in which the powers that be, in this case, the central banks, only adopt this new carbon reward, carbon quantitative easing policy, essentially when they're forced to. And they're forced to through a variety of different circumstances, as well as sort of activism, as well as there's a sort of this not really detailed out much crypto decentralized financial social media hybrid application, which is sort of referred to in which people are actively exiting the existing financial system. And so there's that and that there's a number of sticks and there's a number of carrots that are sort of placed in front of the these fictitious central bankers. Um, and, and in this story, they sort of go for broke. They're going for the biggest central banks. They're going for China and the United States and the EU, trying to get you know, the, the big players to adopt it so that everyone else does. But the interplay there is really a carrot and stick approach. And some of the sticks are not, we, we're led to believe, are not necessarily coordinated. They're things that arise because of people taking direct action due to the impact of climate change on their lives. So it's not its not as if there's sort of a, a global conspiracy to get this one thing. It's all kind of a very realistic mishmash of many different actors taking different tacks and, yeah, doing different things. So I'm, I'm curious what that invited for you just in, in terms of your strategy. And do you need a stick? <laughs> this is... Uh... Look, for the audience, I'll just be really open and first state that I've never worked in a central bank. I don't 
really know any central bankers. I've spoken to some. I've visited one central bank in the Netherlands for a workshop on climate policy, but that's it. So my attitude about them is based on presumptions. Mm -hmm. And my presumption is that these people are confined by their mandates, which they have to follow. So the central banks themselves don't set their own mandate. It's set by political process and enforced by a regulator. Therefore, if we're going to expand their mandates uh, with a new type of quantitative easing and purchasing program, it'll have to come through the legislative process, I assume. And then they will have no choice. They have to follow the mandates that are given to them. So there will be some organic uh, conversations within all these institutions between politicians, regulators and central bank economists, etc. That's my guess. And they all need to be sort of on the same wavelength. Mm. What's going to happen or what should they do? And at this point in time, all I can say is that the official statement coming out of central bank institutions, such as the Network for Green Financial System, is that they're sticking to their mandate of market neutrality. There are noises coming from people that they should expand their mandate. And so uh, I think Christine Lagarde has made noises that she would like the European Central Bank to be more creative with their monetary policy. And there, there is social backlash against the quantitative easing from the global financial crisis and now the COVID recession. There's backlash because that broad brush purchasing program of buying all the bonds, etc. it has the effect, so it seems, of exacerbating the wealth inequality problem. Yeah. And then there is the original problem of quantitative easing, which is that it doesn't put money directly into the productive sectors of the economy. So right. There are a number of limitations of the conventional monetary policy. And hopefully, if they see the global carbon reward, they'll talk about it. And then they'll think that think about it as being a functional policy. But what I believe sets our policy apart from, say, other proposals that might involve digital technologies or central bank digital currencies, is that part of our policy research, I'm saying, we're saying that it's actually supported by a fundamental theory on how market-based policies putting prices on carbon and should be connected to monetary policy. Mm -hmm. That fundamental theory is that that's actually necessary to be able to manage the systemic risks of climate change. And so this is really the key difference here, if you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of the theory. And that is our work and policy makes the that all of the systemic risks related to climate change, including the need to physically mitigate, belong in a monetary policy for the central banks. Whereas today, central banks don't see it that way. What they think is that they're only responsible for the financial systemic risks and not the Paris Agreement. So they, they draw a line there. They don't want to be responsible for the climate mitigation actions themselves. They only want to be responsible for the downstream financial systemic risks, which they've talked about, and they are making definite progress in, in communicating that and doing something about it. But to take responsibility for the, the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement is a totally different world because then uh, it opens the door to all the technical issues that, Greg, that you would discuss about how mitigation 
needs to be assessed. Is it technically feasible? You know, it's such a huge topic and so information intensive that it probably scares the pants of the central banks. They don't yeah. want to, to do that. So yeah. um, just to... But the counter argument is that, in fact, as central banks, in order to appropriately manage their responsibilities as central bankers, which essentially is economic stability and the stability of the currencies that are used for commerce nationally and globally, in order to actually preserve that stability, they need to be proactive so that the foundation of our economy, which is a a livable biosphere, is not destroyed. So there's sort of a like an assess, a necessary expansion of scope in order to successfully fulfill their existing scope is kind of the argument, correct? Yeah, correct. And um, that's if, if we were to analyze from beginning to end, that's really the end point, isn't it? That um, if we don't have a livable climate, we don't have a planetary ecosystem that is stable and can sustain human agriculture, mm-hmm. then the wheels will fall off this project. Right. We could have uh, dangers to catastrophic climate change, abrupt climate change, with all the associated unpredictable, chaotic implications of that, including ecosystem breakdown, positive feedbacks in the climate system, societal tipping points and breakdown, political mayhem, climate refugees, and on and on. Uh, it's a Pandora's box of problems. And so it doesn't really make sense for our central bank institutions to be only managing financial risk. I'm assuming that yourself and many of our listeners would probably agree with that, but we're really discussing something philosophical in relation to responsibilities. Who is responsible for this problem? And the point that I'm trying to get across with the Global Carbon Reward is that the problem of climate change is so huge that I don't think the central bankers and the economists, policymakers, really know what to do with this problem because it's, it's kind of out, of out of control. And there are a couple of reasons why it's getting out of control, and I'll just make a couple of points. One is that when scientists do assessments of all the policies that are being proposed and they assess the amount of carbon that's still going to be emitted with the most optimistic policies, there's still a very significant amount of carbon coming out for most of the century. We're talking maybe a few hundred to a thousand gigatons of carbon dioxide. So if we have such significant residual emissions, which is highly likely, if we want to stand at two degrees, we'd have to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And then how do we pay for that? I don't think there is any policy that explains how we're going to pay for a gigaton of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the best case scenario. So that needs to be funded. We, we're struggling with the funding just to decarbonize as it is. And then we have another related problem, which is that some scientists believe that we've already triggered positive feedbacks, such that even if we zeroed off our emissions today... We uh, still need to draw down. Yeah, the climate system's still going to kick in with albedo loss, thawing of permafrost in the Arctic, uh, long-term emissions of CO2 and methane that will uh, slowly push the climate past two, three, maybe even beyond that degrees warming. So, uh, greenhouse Earth going back to the dinosaur days will just be swimming around in a big soup of thick, humid air. 
Yeah, back to a Pliocene climate, which yes. is um, about two to three million years ago, when the when the planet was warmer by uh, two two to four degrees. And, what were the creatures? Uh, refresh my memory. In the Pliocene, there's megafauna around. There's like giant sloths, and you know, not definitely no dinosaurs back then. But it does. But there is a similar climate as some of the period like anyway I, i'm just trying to place because people it's so interesting to place ourselves to just imagine you know if we do that you know we can look back and we can say oh the world was once that way but never while humans were around <laughs> yeah look I, I i'm not not a biologist geologist but i i did hear that there were hippos in, in london on the thames river so there would probably have been forests all the way up to the northern end of Canada and uh, Siberia, you know. Maybe the forests in Greenland. I, I'm not sure. It was pretty, pretty warm. Pretty warm. And I, I know there's fossil records, certainly. I grew up in Alaska and there are places, you know, under the tundra where you could essentially go dig up a redwood tree and just sort of think, you know, like California climate of redwoods was all the way at 50 degrees north or something so yeah i think the important scientific understanding of the Pliocene, which is two to five million years ago is that the earth wasn't going through these glacial cycles that was before the glacial cycles started and then the glacial cycles which have been happening for one or two million years they are a product of low CO2 in the atmosphere and triggered by the Malankovic cycle as well, adding to that. So what it says is that because of the low CO2 in the atmosphere, the Earth's climate is sensitive to these subtle changes in solar radiance, which tends to push the climate into a glacial period and then mm. comes out in the interglacial, which is like the one we're in now, and now we're going to push it way out of that, back to a, a warmer climate. So that's the possibility. I think maybe at this point I should stop talking about climate because you want to talk to a climate scientist and I'm not a climate scientist. I'm a hydrologist, which is a bit different. Right. Well, it is useful to hear your perspective about that. Um, and I, I think it is always important to sort of zoom out and look at the larger, sort of think of time in a geological sense because it's, uh, useful for us humans who sometimes get stuck in our day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. So, yeah. Yeah, look, um, I'd like to slip an idea in here at this point about the talking about climate over the long term, hundreds of thousands of years and millions of years. What's frustrating, I think, for scientists is that they understand these long-term implications, um, both the climate, how it changes over millions of years, how it affects species diversity and extinctions. But when it comes to the economics of climate change, these concepts tend to be dropped out of the conversation because of time discount. So if we have a discount rate in economics of just, say, one, two, three percent, you basically don't care about the future beyond 100 years. And so these long-term implications don't register in the economic assessment. And this is an interesting point in our previous interview, uh, Gregory, I talked a bit about this. I went on and on about systemic risk and efficiency. And um, 
the, the key difference here with theory is that I'm saying the global carbon reward has an objective of managing systemic risk inherently. And because it's risk-based and probabilistic, there is no time discounting involved. And this is how I believe many of these economic paradoxes associated with time discounting uh, can be resolved. And it does make sense from a practical point of view as well that if you take an approach that's risk-based and not based on social cost, time discounting of damages, then you don't get these temporal paradoxes around should we use a high discount rate or a low discount rate and so on because there is no time discount. And the removal of the time discounting brings in every kind of uh, understanding of risk that we want to bring in, including paleo climate, biology, ecology, and we're not restricted to this um, neoclassical approach that is based on cost versus benefit analysis and time discount. So I just wanted to put that, that out there for people who are interested. Yeah, no, that's really important, I think. And that's, yeah, really fascinating approach. And, and neoclassical economics, certainly the sort of time discount theory and the fact that everyone is just operating as if that is sort of almost like a first principle of the universe <laughs> instead of sort of an abstract sort of a mathematical tool that was used that kind of doesn't necessarily have any foundation, it turns out in physical reality is really important piece. You know, what does it look like to, to tie our monetary policy and financial system more to bio-geophysical reality, I think, is, is something that I'm quite inspired around your leadership and, and just thinking that. So, Thanks. Yeah. Um, you, you made a comment then that the time discounting or the cost-benefit wasn't grounded in, in the physical world. I, I just want to make comment that I think actually it is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm disagreeing with you here, but Great. Uh, the, the, the way I interpret it is that the way neoclassical economics deals with uh, the costs and the benefits is quite rational. And the point about the approach is it's framed by social sciences. So their costs and their benefits are societal costs. They're, yeah, they're, they're purely societal. Yeah, they're social. So. And they have an assumption that they have a set of embedded assumptions that an economy can continue to grow forever, for instance, and therefore, you know, doing something now makes future generations richer and they can deal with problems themselves better than you could plan on dealing with that problem for them. So there's just a big assumption there. Yeah, that's so true. There's actually an economist, I don't remember the name, who does make the claim that we don't really need high taxes. We should have very low taxes because we're going to be richer in 100 years' time. So why waste the money on mitigating the climate? And um, that's a product of cost versus benefit to the extreme. Mm -hmm. And this approach that they have is seductive because it is quite convincing. Mm. But uh, the way I see it is that they're... It's a measure of efficiency. At the end of the day, they call it allocative efficiency. And what I'm saying is that that allocative efficiency is really a biological efficiency for human beings from a biological perspective. And it can be associated with a more general understanding of energy efficiency. And to complement that, we need the complementary opposite, which is, uh, I call it a risk-based approach, a risk management 
but to be more thermodynamic in my wording, I describe it as entropic risk, managing entropic risks, because greenhouse gases are a highly entropic byproduct of combustion. And to manage entropic risk, uh, and this is from a biophysical perspective, I'm speaking, uh, systems need probabilistic intelligence. And so probabilistic intelligence is a quality of living things to survive. We have it quite clearly. We human beings take risks and we know how to do that and the risk reward. But my interpretation is that all complex living things have some kind of probabilistic intelligence built into their biology. But we, that concept doesn't have an equivalent or an analogue in economics, as far as I understand. I could be wrong about that, but the, the global carbon reward, its purpose, its function is to provide this probabilistic intelligence to guide us to manage these systemic risks, uh, as opposed to just focusing on the efficiencies. And so I'm just, I'll wrap this up now and say that both the efficiencies and the management of risk are important and that we can have both of them running in parallel. And this is what differentiates this uh, analysis from neoclassical. Neoclassical only focuses on the efficiency side. And what I'm saying is we need efficiencies and risk management together because in my understanding, this is the way complex living systems behave. And um, I have to be careful that we don't go down rabbit hole here, but Oh, rabbit holes are welcome. There's no problem there. <laughs> um, well, I think just to see if, uh, you know, in in some of the amateur work that I've done in the field of, I guess, what we'd broadly call economics or maybe more specifically business, uh, a colleague and I developed a framework called the eight forms of capital in which we were trying, and it was quite an intuitive exercise, more sort of uh, folk folk science than academic, uh, an academic approach. But we basically just interviewed a whole bunch of people over the course of a process. Actually, this was when I met Jonathan Cloud, who's one of your collaborators, was in these days back when we were running the financial permaculture courses and institute. And, you know, we started to realize that people intuitively understood that there were multiple different forms of value that had different ways of identifying quality and quantity than are easily explained with sort of financial capital systems. And, you know, we broadly found that there were eight of them, right? And we started scratching our heads and starting to think, well, okay, so if you're going to have a holistic approach using these eight forms of capital, you could broadly say that the world as we know it is a story of optimizing for the efficient liquidation of all of the other forms of capital and their conversion into financial capital. You know, that's, <laughs> that's one way of sort of thinking about things, maybe a little oversimplistic, but it seems accurate enough. And that, you know, we needed to start, again, we needed to transform our approach so that the efficiency in that was sort of transformed to a balancing approach in which financial capital is serving these other forms of capital as well and vice versa. So I'm just sort of interpreting through my own experience and my own lens what you're talking about in terms of the complementary of efficiency being sort of uh, an assessment and reduction of risk 
And I believe that that sort of um, standard portfolio theory for financial advisors is you reduce risk through diversity. So I'm sort of kind of like looking, I'm hearing what you're saying through that lens of we need to diversify the role of money in our society away from a strict efficiency around financial capital. And that's maybe me trying to, you know, I'm sort of, I'm beaming that, bouncing that back to you and saying, does that all seem to hold water and resonate from your perspective of how you're holding your new theory that's sort of emerging and growing here? Uh, Yes, very much so. And in a formal way as well. So just by way of background, um, monetary theorists have been talking about this issue for years. That is, um, if we, particularly if we listen to Bernard Lightyear, who died about mm. a year or two ago, he often talked about the need for a balance between efficiency and diversity within ecosystems. And he intuited that that was a key feature for sustainability. And he wrote a report on these ideas and recommending that we introduce more currencies into the world economy. So before you were talking about the idea of converting uh, the eight forms of capital which I'm not sure what they are, but if you convert capital, natural capital, into money, profits, this could be quite disastrous. And I think we're seeing signs of that in, um, in the global capitalist system. Yeah, that's one way of describing, I think, what is, is indeed happening. You know, climate change is sort of the emergent property of that exact, exactly that flow. Yeah, so if we look at the climate, I think we can conclude the world economy is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So capitalism isn't sufficient in a, in its own. And um, the point I want to make is that we're limiting ourselves if we only use national fiat currencies. So national fiat currencies are the uh, paradigm for the economy today. Ever since the end of Bretton Woods Agreement, national currencies have been free-floating. Some are managed, but uh, generally we have every country in the world has a fiat currency. Mm-hmm. And uh, the unit of account is informational, and that means it has no context in relation to the biases of the world. Yeah. So what's interesting in, in the policy analysis that I put forward, which is called the holistic market hypothesis, if you want to name, uh, is that through an ontology, we derive the global carbon reward from the carbon tax, so they're related to each other. And the interesting thing is that the global carbon reward out of this analysis pops out a new currency, which has a unit account of carbon. So to be more precise, the currency has a unit account of 100 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent mitigated for a 100-year duration. So that is a physical unit, and that means this currency represents something physical, a service. And what that implies, um, that if this were to be introduced as an international uh, representative currency, we have the option to change the context of value in the economy. And my personal opinion is that this is how we should be thinking to resolve the problem of unsustainable capitalism and socialism. I think we could lump socialism in there as well, because I don't see socialism being any that much more sustainable than capitalism if it can't solve the climate crisis. So the economy we have is limited by the unit of account. We introduce a new unit of account, and that sets a new context for value in the economy, which is an ecosystem. And I think this 
could resolve a number of conundrums in economic and sustainability theory. That's something for uh, philosophers and academics to reflect on and decide. But I'm advocating this approach as a way of fundamentally addressing the problem of climate change. So uh, I sort of have this branching pattern of different elements of this or different facets of this conversation that I, I'm curious to dig into. But I thought maybe I would, if it's okay with you, I'd ask a couple personal questions. Because I, one of the things I'm most curious about is just when, given your background in engineering and hydrology, you know, what happened? What catalyzed? What was, what's the life story behind you choosing to dedicate so much energy and attention to sort of unraveling this quite complex uh, puzzle that's in terms of how academics, how, how academia wants us to sort of think in silos, it's sort of outside of your traditional silo. Now, I think it's certainly part of a whole, and I can, I can sort of see the linkage pretty clearly, but I'm curious about your story there. Like what happened to catalyze that and, and how has it been? You know, how long have you been working on this? You know, those sorts of things. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a personal story. Uh, I was not asked to do this by anybody. What happened was I've, I have a career in mainly resources and mining that spans about 12, 15 years. And um, I was always been interested in, in environmental issues. So by dabbling in different industries, including mining, water resources and geothermal energy, I came to a point in my life that I wasn't satisfied in those projects for a variety of reasons. And then I had a, uh, a relationship breakdown, which happens, you know, and then I had time in my hands to think and reflect. So I, I travel, I like to travel. So I travel around the world, started in Bali, and then I went to Southeast Asia and Europe. And on that trip, I combined it with looking into climate change. I went to a conference, uh, one of Al Gore's conferences, and at that point, I just followed an intuition that I thought that a, a monetary system, a currency, would be used to provide scalable finance. Because I also thought the problem was mainly financial. Now, to get to that point and make that kind of decision without actually having a theory or a reason, but just a hunch, um, the reason I, I went with my intuition was because in the past I've done that and I've solved problems through this approach of intuition. So when you have a mathematical or analytical problem, like how to solve a tidal flow problem or how to solve a numerical problem, mm. do a lot of mathematical modeling in hydrology, groundwater hydrology, um, and we use finite difference algorithms and analytical methods. So I've done a lot of that kind of work where you, you don't really have an answer when you start, you go by hunches based on what you've picked up in uh, reading textbooks and doing exams and things. There's maybe one or two percent of that information you learn at university that actually is really useful in these situations where you mm. have to come up with a new, a new uh, conceptual model or solution. So having done that and been successful at it in the past, it gave me kind of this uh, naive courage. Right. Uh, a little bit of confidence where... I think most people would say you're crazy, you know. But I, I was in a time in my life where I didn't have responsibilities or many responsibilities and freedom and some savings that I could explore this. And so when I sat down and did an analysis of the currency, I, I discovered this 
monetary scheme, which is the one we describe really just in, in its basic form. And it just seemed to answer, it just seemed to tick a lot of boxes. And I thought, well, if we can leverage purchasing power from all the world's currencies into one global currency for funding climate mitigation, why don't we do it? Because then we get as much money as we need and it, it would spread the inflation globally. So it would have a thin, small impact on everybody. It doesn't, it doesn't um, register as a tax or a cost for anyone. No individuals taxed, no companies taxed, and the cost doesn't appear in fiscal budgets for governments. So all the stakeholders don't see a cost on their, on their balance sheet. Therefore, you remove yeah. the political conflict over the cost sharing. At least that's the theory. So that encouraged me to uh, persevere. And I think it's the incremental results that I was getting that just kept me going. And then in 2017, I brought in this idea of risk as an objective. And this is where things start to get really deep and scary because I realised that if risk management was to be the objective of a global carbon report, there would have to be a fundamental explanation. Mm. So if the financial mechanism is convincing enough and you don't need to have a theory, that's fine. But the way economics works, I think, at least in the academic world, is there has to be a foundational theory an explanation, justification. And in exploring the question of what's the explanation for managing risk with a reward, global reward, I couldn't really explain it without going to thermodynamics because to me, intuitively, there could exist an explanation if we treat the economy as a biophysical system like we treat biological systems and machines and everything else. They just reframe it in a thermodynamic context and then explain. So I followed that approach until I developed a hypothesis and then I just reviewed the hypothesis to see if it made sense in different ways. And in the ways I've checked it, it does make sense to me. And so that's building my confidence and there's still a lot of work to be done though because the underlying biophysical hypothesis, which has a couple of names, these days I'm calling it the living systems economy, but the biophysical hypothesis that gets right down to physical principles is called the silver gun So one of the drawbacks of this theory is that it can alienate groups, people, because a lot of people don't have time for uh, trying to understand entropy, etc. But people who are in those fields may be very interested in, in the hypothesis. So I need to present that to physicists and people involved in that type of work, but the financial side of it, policy, that's a different conversation that's about its uh, mechanisms and its political and technical feasibility. So there's two conversations running in parallel, and I have to try and manage the conversation so I don't get my wires crossed. It sounds like on sort of your personal journey, sort of vocationally and livelihood-wise, you, you were able to afford yourself the time and space to have a lot of intrinsic motivation and, and just sort of live in service to your own wisdom. And, you know, and clearly that drew you into trying to serve many people in the world at large. And I'm curious if at this stage things have matured to a, a state at, in which you're able to 
sort of have your vocation and livelihood aligned with that path fully, or if you're sort of still needing to wrangle with that problem that many people have, maybe many of our listeners uh, right now uh, around how do you have a foot in the future and a foot in the past, (laughs) just in terms of what you dedicate your time to. Yeah, I've dedicated myself to this uh, research project for nearly six years, and uh, it's a thankless task. There's no chorus of people cheering me on. Uh, There's no financial reward. It's hard work. There is uh, plenty of scope to have disagreements with people on an emotional level or an intellectual level. Uh, So it's a lonely path. And what keeps me going is a couple of things. One is there's always one or two or three really great people to collaborate with, like self, that I feel comfortable with that I'm not losing my mind, that I'm not doing something totally insane. And the other part of it is that because I did a PhD, which a long time, about four years of field work, I know what it's like to to tackle a really big problem with a lot of moving parts. And so I I suppose I have the perseverance or tenacity to keep going when the going gets tough in in the theoretical world and and also in, in the just getting on with the day after day. But to be uh, frank about it, look, there are no guarantees for me in my vocation. This could all fall flat for me for a number of reasons. It's a very fragile situation. And on the other hand, if the policy is implemented as the way that we're presenting it or it finds traction, it could find, give me a career for the next 20 years, demanding career. So only time will tell. I have no idea, Gregory, what's going to happen well, I think uh, I'll hope for you personally and for everyone <laughs> that it gets enough traction for you to be a very busy man for the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, thank you for sort of taking us on a little bit of that journey, the path less traveled, which I think is, um, it's an important, it's important at this stage, I think, in sort of the evolution of humans and our current, current place in society that people have the courage to do what you did and just sort of step out of the, st- the stream of the day-to-day, uh, you know, rat race and take a moment to just kind of connect and have, be sort of driven by a more intrinsic, more maybe subtle and harder to hear wisdom and look at what emerges, you know, a, a, a transformative economic theory that, you know, whether it's completely right or wrong, I think, at least my sense is it's expressing something in a formal way that many people have had an intuitive sense of, and it can sort of serve to up-level a conversation with rigor that just really needs to happen. So I certainly applaud that. I'm certainly very grateful for all of your work. Thank you, Greg. That's uh, really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, sort of shifting gears in the conversation here a little bit, uh, kind of reweaving a thread that we had been following earlier in the conversation about your work showing up in the Ministry for the Future. And in the Ministry for the Future, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson applies that the reward is applied to maybe some things that aren't in your conception of what this reward needs to be applied for, namely keeping oil in the ground, or that is sort of avoided emissions instead of simply, you know, carbon drawdown and carbon removal and other sort of uh, deeply risk mitigating activities. 
And I'd love to just, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and pros and cons that you see with that being included from the policy perspective, maybe thinking of it more just as a, you know, the fact that he included it, we don't need to, I'm not trying to criticize that or not, but just it's a, it's a great invitation to consider, you know, should we be paying oil companies off to keep oil in the ground or should that be off the table? Why and why not? <laughs> Look, um, Stan, that's Kim Stanley Robertson and I, uh, we crossed swords on this point about using the policy to pay fossil fuel companies to keep their resources in the ground. So I, I, I pointed out to Stan that that's not the way I think the policy should work. And Stan has the right as a fiction writer to innovate how he wants. So we, I think we're still friends. But just to clarify, the reason I don't think we should reward fossil fuel companies to keep their fossil fuels in the ground is because energy is strongly coupled to purchasing power for the whole economy. And if you re come to realise that the amount of energy that we've consumed so far in the history of human civilization since industrialization is only about half of the available fossil fuel resources in the ground. So imagine all the economic wealth we've accumulated in the past, say, 70 or 80 years, 100 years, and then double that because that, that was all energised by fossil fuels and there's double that energy in the ground still. So how do we finance or pay companies to keep it in the ground? It's just too much energy. So I think the bottom line is that it could be inflationary and it could distort the economy. Um, there are other more detailed reasons too because it becomes problematic about how you would implement it when resource companies, they always extract the low-hanging fruit. They're not going to change their pattern of extraction if you pay them because they'll want you to pay for the fruit that's high-hanging. So they'll, they'll want to sell their resources that are difficult to get at, which they're, they're not going to get to later anyway. So there's a little bit of a problem there at a fundamental level. In the policy, though, what it does do is offers rewards for providing cleaner energy. So if there's some kind of baseline we set about the carbon intensity of energy, and if you go below that, the utility could earn a reward. And that would encourage companies to provide cleaner energy for the reward. And that removes demand for fossil fuels. And so I think the way to solve the problem is to remove the demand. You can't remove the supply because there's so much fossil fuels in the world. Remember twice what we've already consumed. So um, removing the demand is, I think, the way to solve the problem. There's the old adage about Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones. So in, in the future, we're going to have to go to cleaner energy, but knowing that we're always, we will still be consuming fossil fuels, there will be residual emissions that are quite significant. And another feature of the policy, I think, that is worth mentioning is the way that the rewards can be weighted higher and lower in proportion to the social and ecological co-benefits. So this, I don't think this was really picked up in the Ministry of Future novel, but it is an important uh, innovation that if we invite society to rank what they want, do they want more jobs, do they want more wildlife, do they want sustainable agriculture, what, what do you want? And if that information can be collected in a decentralised administrative system, can we then weight the rewards to incentivise those 
social and ecological co-benefits of people more. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, it sort of sounds like it. there's an intersection there with some things that I've been, um, I haven't formally explored, nor am, am I necessarily capable of formally exploring in a mathematical way, but I have this intuition that the some of the innovations in radical market theory, if you're familiar with radical markets, I would highly recommend as a sort of a heretical, heterodox approach to markets. It's, there's some really great work in the radical markets and the book called Radical Liberalism. So one of the thoughts that I've been having, sorry to tie that, to tie that loose thread up, is that there's this concept that is introduced in radical markets called quadratic funding for the funding of public goods in such a way as it's sort of a democratic process in which one person, one vote, and you have a, a matching pool of funds and that pool distributes quadratically. So the more people who vote for an item that needs to get funded, there's sort of an, it exponentially matches to that so as a way of decoupling sort of the oligarchs can put a lot of money behind it and then it, it sort of goes, well, what if it was a little bit more democratic? And this is a mechanism to democratize that. I've been thinking a lot about what sort of, okay, there's an interesting pattern. There's an interesting design pattern there. And I've been thinking about societal co-benefits to different forms of sequestered carbon. And I have a personal bias, which I wear very proudly, which is that living carbon, living carbon is superior. What I would refer to as living carbon. And that's in soil and forests and coral reefs and mangroves and estuaries. These are the forms of carbon that, and, and the reason that I have that bias is because they provide exponential co-benefits to society and not just society, but to the rest of the non-human world, which I also think is really important to consider. So I've been just playing, rolling around in my head what it would look like to have some sort of quadratic equation for pricing carbon, in which the more verified co-benefits to society and the planet, you know, and you sort of have a matching pool that can then increase the price somehow. Anyway, this has just kind of been a, it sounds like it intersects with kind of what you're talking about there. Yeah, this is a, a topic for our policy. If there's any mathematicians listening to this uh, conversation, uh, I would like a mathematician to look at our weighting scheme and provide a mathematical statement how we can weight these, you call it a quadratic function, but weight the, the priorities of society, ecological and social, without distorting the carbon budget. Right. In a quadratic, doing it in a quadratic, that would be one. You could also do it in a linear. That's a one approach. I, I would love to, where, where would someone, if somebody was listening in and is a mathematician, where would they go to, to review your weighting scheme? Uh, that's not in the public domain. Uh, so they would just they, they just need to get in touch with you. Yeah, just get in touch with me. We have a new domain. It's globalcarbonreward.org, and the email is info at globalcarbonreward.org. If people want to contact me through that email, I can respond. So the mathemat the problem here is that the uh, the unit accounts biophysical, and so when if we adjust the reward up or down for co-benefits, 
the supply of the currency still has to maintain proportionality with carbon stock take holistically. So it becomes an interesting mathematical problem, which I don't think is too difficult, but... Right. And you'd need a social buy-in, as you were sort of mentioning earlier, it's really a pricing. So it's sort of saying not all units of carbon are the same. So some of them will have a higher price, but they'll still just be a unit of carbon. So like a unit of mangrove carbon, because it, you know, regenerates ocean fisheries and regenerates the stocks of over of overfished fisheries and all these other things might be valued higher than a direct air capture unit of carbon, which just captures some carbon into something that can be privately monetized as graphene or whatever down the line. So you wouldn't want society to be paying more for the direct air capture. So there needs to be, yeah, some formalized way of managing that. Yeah. Precisely. And, and this problem is actually quite serious. It's not a, uh, a luxury topic to, to delve in occasionally. It's actually a very serious problem because if humanity is going to transition out of fossil fuels and build God knows how many windmills and solar panels and whatever, there will be environmental impacts and there will be social impacts. So in economics, it's called trade-off. So for every project, even those projects which we think are going to be beautiful, like natural methods of carbon farming, they are going to have impacts on other people and the environment. And so the question is, how do we prioritise projects uh, and trade off these unintended negative consequences with the, the desirable co-benefit. And how to manage this is a huge problem, and that's why the weighting scheme has been put forward as uh, one way to deal with it. And so it becomes a... Um, you delocalise the problem. Sorry, you localise the problem, and you decentralise the decision-making for the weighting so that society can have an influence on what they want in the context of their geography and culture and expectations and you know, economic situation. So your proposal is that something like every year, the body politic would vote on a set of things that they find societally important, and that would create a sort of a bioregional weight for pricing the carbon reward or something like that? Yeah, that's pretty much it, actually. Um, these, these weightings can be via bioregional boundaries or catchment boundaries and political boundaries. Uh, so for the larger scale, say a bioregion, bio you might want to bring in some scientists and ecologists and experts to get their voting, and we might give them a higher weighting than, say, what an average citizen might think. But average citizens should also, there's no such thing as an average citizen, but you know what I mean, the citizen will come in and also have a right to have a vote because you've got to have representation and give people a voice. Otherwise, it becomes too, I don't know, draconian or top, too top-down. So this approach has a combination of top-down, bottom-up, and it consciously talks about the quantity of mitigation and the quality of mitigation. And the quality is what we're talking about, co-benefits. And quantity and quality are very important concepts when we talk about economic growth and degrowth. So... I'll just make a little comment here about degrowth as an idea. Because in certain quarters, there are academics and economists, philosophers talking about the need for economic degrowth. And 
what I want to add to the conversation is the idea that that's too, uh, it's too simple. We do have a growth problem, but the solution cannot simply be growth. What it has to be is a combination of the quantity of economic activity and the quality of activity. So it's a dual problem. And the quantity component is taken care of in our policy with an exchange rate. And then the quality part is taken care of with these weighting rules and all the rules that are going to be developed for the policy. And there will be lots of rules here yeah, for every kind of mitigation, both natural and engineered. And so that's the kind of uh, framing that I'm putting forward for global carbon rule. But the, these ideas of the administrative system is decentralised, but it's also centralised. It's a combination. And from a philosophical perspective and theoretical, it's this complementarity between centralisation, decentralisation, between carrots and sticks, between cooperation and competition. This is what's coming in here for the holistic market hypothesis and the way all of this is framed. And it might sound a little bit um, maybe too academic for some people. Like you could ask, well, is this real? Does it make sense? And um, we, we've got to test it to find out. That's true. But there are some experiments that find that carrot and sticks together do maximise human cooperation. So that has been uh, shown to be a reliable finding through experiments. There's at least three um, published papers on characteristic incentives and studies have shown it does maximise cooperation. So that's a very important finding. And then we come back to the original problem of the carbon balance. Yes, we can reduce emissions within our existing economic model. It won't be enough. There are studies that show quite clearly we're going to have to remove carbon from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide removal and negative emissions technologies. And this is where the global carbon reward comes in with the global market with its own unit of account playing that role uh, that's analogous to photosynthesis, whereas the existing economy is analogous to respiration. An organism, and you call it breath out and breath in in our previous. Uh, yeah. So there you have it. There's another example of complementarity. Yeah. I love the opportunity to be framing all of this in concrete experiences of the biophysical world that everyone, including central bankers, can go outside and take a deep breath in and a deep breath out and ask, you know, how do we learn from our own organism and what we're seeing in the ecosystems around us that can inform these invisible structures that make such a huge difference in the world. You know, in, in by invisible structures, I mean the patterns of monetary theory. You know, you can't go, you know, these are, these are ideas. These are societal norms and, you know, what we choose to value and how we value it and what we choose to disincentivize and incentivize. It's invisible, an eagle flying over a city with their eyes, they don't see these invisible flows of sort of information and ideas, but yet we conceptualize them and yet they're so important and they're so important to transform in such a way that is resonant with a healthy thriving biosphere so i'm really yeah again i just applaud the effort to formalize and bring rigor to the theoretical underpinning i think is much needed and it's not something that i'm 
particularly capable of. And so I'm very happy that you're out there doing that work. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. For people who are listening and might want some more information, I, I think tomorrow I'm giving a short presentation on global carbon reward with the Open Climate Conference. I've got a slide deck for that, and it gives a bit more of the theory. But, uh, you know, the theory can be really overwhelming. It's, it, it's full of concepts and therefore takes time to get used to. So I think it's worth the time if I just m make an, another statement, Gregory, about yeah. what it all means, because we could lose sight of the forest like they are focusing on the trees. But the key message here, I think, for humanity and the very notion of sustainability is that I think what we have as a paradigm problem is that economics has emerged through the 20th century in particular for, with the main focus being efficiencies, improving efficiency of the system, the economy. And that framing being uh, classical, neoclassical, was socially framed. And my understanding, my interpretation and hypothesis is that we need to complement that with another paradigm that specifically seeks probabilistic intelligence to manage systemic risks. And these systemic risks are quite unique because they're really entropic, where entropic means that they are a product of very small probabilistic interactions. But collectively, they have a major systemic risk because they're irreversible to a large extent. So when gases go in the atmosphere, we heat up the climate, that is mostly irreversible. It's very difficult to pull back. And, and so once you're over the cliff, there's no going back. And there's more to the understanding of the systemic risk, but what concerns me deeply is that economists and society in general, we don't seem to have a clear grasp of the notion of how our civilization and economy could or should manage these systemic risks with a paradigm that introduces inefficiencies. Because we're so in love with efficiency, if we start to introduce these inefficiencies, because the global carbon reward will have high transaction costs, a lot of information collected, a lot of administration, and people will look at it and say that's inefficient. But the only example I have that, um, or an example I have that might make some sense is the experience with COVID-19. So in COVID-19, it is entropic because you have millions of people interacting with each other, probabilistically, spreading a virus. And even the economists didn't complain, I don't think, when government shut down the economy, social distancing. And that is quite clearly inefficient. To, to shut down the economy of social distancing is an inefficiency. But if you agree it's a good inefficiency, then pandemic experience is quite a good analogy for climate because you have this entropic spreading of a virus through social interaction with billions of people and you want to stop that because if it gets out of hand it's very difficult to pull back you can't sort of undo it and this is what thermodynamics is saying too with, with carbon it's hard to pull back out of the atmosphere and put it in there because it takes energy and processes to take it out again, it, it's not entropically favoured to reverse climate change, just as it's not entropically favoured to be able to reverse a pandemic. And um, 
if, if people are in agreement that we need to sacrifice efficiencies for systemic risk, then there are parallels between the pandemic and climate change that do need to be discussed in, in depth. I think. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's a great example. Everyone's just lived through the recent, the last year of coronavirus, and, and maybe even the one beautiful thing about the invitation to global carbon reward is, you know, this would create a structure in which the government can actually incentivize behaviors. It, it isn't just telling everybody to stay home. It's saying, hey, we'll pay you to stay home at this agreed upon, you know, in the analogy. It's not just saying, hey, stop this, econ this economic growth. It's saying, hey, we'll pay you to do the things that that offset this detrimental activity. So there's a balance to that and a symmetry, which is quite quite inviting, I think. Well, uh, Delton, it's been a pleasure. And um, thank you so much for taking some of your uh, Saturday with us. And um, I'll let you know when this gets released. And yeah, I'm just super grateful for your time and your work. Well, thank you, Gregory. It's, it's all the pleasure's mine. And uh, it's great talking with you. I really enjoy uh, the pace of our conversations and. I look forward to um, the next one. Yeah, let's do another one and, and let's jam on uh, how to make this real. So um, looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Cheers.